Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation. But it's not a coronation you'd expect, because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. This morning's sermon text comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And, his, and the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to him, Peter Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy on us uh, in bringing us here. We thank you for your mercy uh, in calling us your children, those who were far off, sinful, and dead will be brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Father, you are good to us. You are kind and merciful. We thank you that you love us. And we pray today, uh, as we hear your words read to us and as Mason preaches, uh, they would be glorifying to you and sharpening to us, good for us, uh, that we would be molded more into the image of your son, that we would love you more as we leave this place. Uh, God, we ask and we believe that your spirit can do a mighty work in this place. And we ask that this morning that this just normal morning would be an extraordinary morning uh, for the hearts and souls of people here. God, I pray as we take up offering uh, that this would be a time that we would worship you, that we would not look at at this as a burden or we would not be selfish uh, and just hoard all of our means, but that we would give freely, joyously, and graciously to your kingdom and for your glory. We love you. Amen. Amen. Uh, Res kids, you guys are dismissed. No uh, baby dedications or anything like that today. Um, ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward. I hope you had a good week. I know I had a, a pretty good week uh, myself. Um, I took some of our team up to a conference in Louisville. It happens uh, every other year called Together for the Gospel. And uh, I, I taught our guys, I said, if you learn anything from me these couple days, learn how to conference well. This is how you conference well. You go to a few sessions, you eat a lot of food, you find something more fun to do in town, skip a few sessions, go to that thing, and then come back to a few sessions. So if you're in a field where you need to do some conferences, that's how I recommend going about a good conference. It keeps you fresh, keeps you energized, and so we had a good time there. We had a really good time up until I got back. Uh, some of you have seen, I've gone famous on Facebook. Um, I've got hundreds and hundreds of shares of a post. Uh, we parked at Fort Hill Park and Ride, and uh, someone decided that the Lord had led them to drill into my gas tank, like with a drill. So we get there, and, you know, Cleve is cracking jokes about, oh, look at all the fluid on the ground. That's funny. I bet someone lost their oil. We're like, oh, yeah, what a loser that is. And so then uh, we're, we're driving, and, and the farmer's sitting beside me in the car, and I'm like, man, I swear I thought I had a full tank of gas when, I, when, we, when we got here. And then I was thinking about it, and I was, you know how you kind of talk to yourself, and I was like, oh, no, I know I did. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. And so we get down here to the west side. We pull up, up here at uh, Emmanuel uh, Baptist, and... Um, we see it's still leaking, and we see the hole right in the middle. And I get to the, uh, the shop, and the guy at my shop tells me that I'm the fifth person in three months that had the exact same thing happen to him at the Fort Hill Park and Ride. So a word to the wise, be very, very careful when parking at the Fort Hill Park and Ride. I've traded my Tacoma, and I have a dad SUV now. So um, it's pretty exciting. So we had a good time, and uh, the Lord was gracious even then, and deductible is a lot better than a whole new gas tank. So praise God for insurance and uh, all of those things. So on um, January 5th, 1993, I was born. Eight months and some change later on September, uh, I think, 15th, 1993, America's beloved singer Meatloaf first performed the classic song, I Would Do Anything For Love. You know the lyrics, I would do anything for love. Oh, I would do, yeah, I would do anything for love. I, I would do anything. I was going to sing it. I still might later. Um, instead of the doxology, let's do that, Nick. Um, um, the videos on YouTube and research for this sermon were incredible. Uh, I would do anything for love, and we all know, but... I won't do that. Uh, I don't think Meatloaf was a Christian. 
Um, he might be. Uh, in the song, though, he mentions praying to the God of rock and roll and some other things, so I don't really presume he is a Christian, but those lyrics kept popping into my mind as I read this very familiar story that we have come to know as the rich young ruler. Uh, in our text today, Jesus encounters a man who is concerned about his prospects of eternal life. We know when we add the Matthew, Mark, and Luke account of this um, happening together. We know he was a wealthy man. We know he was a powerful man. The text in, one of the texts says he was a ruler. Uh, we think that means he was a synagogue ruler. A religious leader would have conferred him with some degree of, of power and wealth, particularly uh, at a, a relatively young age. He wants to know if he's going to inherit eternal life. He's been a model citizen. He's almost certainly a driven individual. He almost certainly has an acute sense of morality, but he has sort of a nagging insecurity about whether or not his goodness and his intelligence are enough. And he comes to Jesus with one big question that's a great question to ask. What's it going to take for me to inherit eternal life? What's it going to take for me to inherit eternal life? life. We'll see that Jesus loves this guy and that in his love, he answers his question. He tells him exactly what it's going to take to inherit eternal life. And he responds in the same vein as meatloaf would respond some uh, 1900 years later. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. The question posed in our text today gets to the very heart of the Christian faith and practice, and that is this, what must we do to inherit eternal life? But as we ponder that question, as we see that question in the text, it takes us to another question that is equally important to ask, and that question is this, is it worth it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? is going to inevitably lead us to a second question when we find the answer to that question. And that question is simply this, is it worth it? I want to make the case this morning in our text that though following Jesus may come at great personal cost, he is more than worth it. May we embrace what Jesus says we must do to inherit eternal life. So our text today is really just kind of, I've subdivided into two broad categories, uh, verses 17 through 22, uh, and then verses 23 through 31. We can call verses 17 to 22, if you're taking notes, um, the interaction, the interaction. And then we can call verses, what, 23 through 31, the, uh, the lesson, the lesson, the interaction and the lesson. Now... I mentioned last week, I didn't preach on it, but I talked about it for a little bit, um, when Jesus is encountered by some children, and then they, the disciples are incensed, and they're like, these children are, are rugrats, we need to get them away from us, so they're trying to shoo all the kids away, and then Jesus is incensed to the disciples for telling the kids to go away, and he says, let the children come to me, for such, are, you know, such will inherit the kingdom of God, and so Jesus begins a part of Mark where he is teaching about entry into the kingdom of God, and sometimes we can untether that portion of the text from the lesson that we see in the rich young ruler. Because in the rich young ruler, we see sort of the antithesis of coming to God as a child. 
We see someone who doesn't come to God as a child, but we see someone who comes to God as a very put-together man with a high degree of perhaps emotional and uh, intellectual and spiritual and moral uh, acuity. In Mark 10, 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. As we saw last week with the kids in our baby dedication, as they clung to their parents, so too must we in faith, in innocent faith, right, cling to our heavenly Father if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. With that context, thinking about this theme of entry into God's kingdom, we move on to the story of the rich young man, as he's called in Mark, and the rich young ruler, as he's called in other passages. Verse 17 And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's think about his question for just a moment and his approach. His approach is uh, somewhat refreshing if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has quite a few religious foes, and those foes will stop at nothing to try to antagonize Christ and slow down the spread of this Gospel of the kingdom. However, this guy is different. This guy is different. He's not rude. We think, it seems from the text, that he comes to Jesus pretty authentically. He comes to Jesus reverentially. The text says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Calling him good teacher was no small thing. He believes that this guy is a good guy. He, he's heard about Jesus. He's seen Jesus. And he affirms that Jesus' teaching is good. And he is curious about what this good teacher's question is going, or answer is going to be to his good question. And so what is his good question? What must I do to in, inherit eternal life? I want us to note an undertone of the question that we may miss if we don't think about it. But there is implied in the question this sense of um, what we could call a, a piety of achievement. A piety of achievement. And, and what I mean by that is underneath his question is a conviction that there is something he can do that's going to increase his likelihood of attaining eternal life that perhaps there is something he can accomplish, something out there that he can, um, he can do or not do that will ensure that he receives eternal life. His logic is pretty easy to follow. One, I believe there is eternal life. We can assume he would have believed the Old Testament, right? He would have been familiar with the Old Testament, especially if, as many think, he was a ruler in a synagogue. I believe there is eternal life. I believe that I must do something to inherit eternal life. This good teacher seems to love the same scriptures I love, and perhaps this good teacher can tell me what it is I need to do, according to those scriptures, to inherit eternal life. So if we think about it as logic, it's really not poor logic. I believe there's eternal life. There's something I need to do to get it. This guy seems good. I'm going to ask him. Because he's good, he'll know what it's going to take to get it, and I'll get eternal life. But I think underneath his logic, there's something that's more than intellectual going on. I think there's something deeply spiritual happening, and there's something deeply emotional happening. I think he's nagged by a question, what if it's not enough? What if it's not enough? What if my efforts to be good, what if I've just never been good enough? You know, this guy is like the perfect person that you hope to find when you're sharing the gospel, right? When you're, when you're sharing the gospel, you, you would love for someone to ask you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
You'd be like, man, this is the easiest gospel conversation I've ever had in my life. Believe on Jesus and be saved. Turn from your sin. By grace, you're saved through faith. And this is awesome. Let's go have a party. I'm going to bring you to my church. Let's go. And so it's this sort of ideal scenario. This happened to me once, um, and it turned out to be a joke. I was at a coffee shop, and my good friend uh, J.D. Gandy, who uh, leads Celebrate Recovery at, at River Ridge, um, I hadn't really gotten to know him yet, but he knew who I was, and so I'm sitting at my um, desk at Moxie some years ago, and he comes up to me, and he's like, excuse me, sir. And I'm like, this is kind of odd, but okay. Hi, you know, what's up, man? He would, I just have a question. What, what must I do to, to become a Christian? And I was like, oh, man, this is like put on a tee. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is perfect. And so I'm like, oh, man, well, I'm glad. Like, gra- grab your drink, sit down, you know? And, I, and I'm all excited, and he's like, I'm already a Christian. I'm just messing with you. And he walked away. I was like, bro, that wasn't even funny. Like, I thought that was my opportunity. I was going to tell everyone about this. And he was like, oh, I just knew you'd love that. And I was like, well, I I did, but I kind of don't, you know? I mean, like, that was my shot. And so, you know, what I thought I was experiencing is kind of what Jesus is experiencing here. You would think, you know, it's set up on a tee. Come on, Jesus, don't mess this one up. Jesus, he's asking you the right question. Like, give him what he wants to hear, because when he wants to hear, when he gets what he wants to hear, surely he'll believe in you. Surely he'll follow you. His logic isn't bad. We certainly understand why he may be left unfulfilled even after all of his success. His question is refreshingly clear, and it's one of the most important questions in all the Bible. And he's come to the perfect person for the answer. But Jesus sees more than we see. Jesus sees that implied in his question is a worldview that needs corrected. And Jesus says something that upon a casual reading of the text is quite perplexing, right? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And if you're a skeptic, you may be like, why is Jesus saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Is Jesus then saying, I'm not good because I'm not God? Is that what he's saying? Well, that's certainly not what he's saying. This doesn't mean that Jesus isn't God. It means that this guy doesn't know Jesus is God, so why does he assume he's good? This guy doesn't know Jesus is God. So his assumption that he's a good teacher is based off a worldview that believes we're fundamentally good people. I'm a good person, you're a good person. You're gonna have one good person going to a better person for advice is what his religion could be summed up as. Jesus is repudiating his idea of goodness defined by relative human achievement. Because compared to Hitler, I'm awesome. But compared to someone else, I'm not awesome. And Jesus is saying there is no sort of human referential that's going to get you at the appropriate idea of goodness. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except who? God alone. God is how we think about goodness. God is our reference point, the beginning point, the end point of all understanding of this idea of goodness. Jesus is reframing the way this guy thinks about goodness by referring to God, our only standard of goodness. So Jesus, from the get-go, is telling this guy, only God is good. Your assumption, though accurate in this case, is informed by a faulty worldview. But nonetheless, Jesus goes on to answer his question. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. 
So Jesus is sort of um, going back to some uh, sort of summation of the Ten Commandments, things that we must do and things that we must not do. We must honor our parents. We must um, not kill. We must not steal and all of these things. Jesus says, essentially, if you want to inherit eternal life, here's what you have to do. Obey the perfect will of God, which is revealed in his perfect law. And if you then meet God's perfect requirement for holiness, you are good to go. Obey God's perfect will revealed in God's perfect law. And if you meet God's perfect requirement, you are going to be good to go. And I sense a hint of sort of um, just like a letdown in his response. He said, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I have two thoughts about this. First is just kind of, really? Really? You've kept all these from your youth? I realize you probably haven't killed anybody. Maybe you've honored your parents. Maybe you've done all these things. But we know Jesus teaches, right, if you um, lust after another woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. We know Jesus teaches that if you hate your brother you've, in your heart, you've killed him. Right, sins already, already happened. So in the Christian worldview, we know the guy is far from perfect, and so we shouldn't think that he's been a perfect citizen his whole life. It just needs to be better. I think he's perhaps grossly misunderstanding his own goodness here, but that's one thing. Another thing, though, I, I think he probably has been a pretty good guy by earthly standards. If good is referential in terms of how other people are, he probably looks around him and says, well, I'm better than that guy. I'm better than her. I'm better than these people. I love my parents. I provide for them. You know, I've made a lot of money. I'm using that money well. I'm responsible. I'm moral. I don't hate other people. I've never tried to assassinate someone. Like, I'm a pretty good guy. So in one sense, it's kind of like, okay, like you need to think more deeply about your sin. But in another sense, he's looking around and he's saying, I'm a pretty good guy. And I think most people in our world today, most people in West Virginia especially, um, they look around and they're especially like the good old boy kind of guys that we we would grow up with. and, And they're pretty good dudes, you know? They don't they don't do a whole lot of messed up. They don't kill anybody. They don't, you know, they get married. They're faithful to their wives. And, and these things are all well and good. I think this rich young man has genuinely tried to live according to God's law. And maybe he's done a pretty good job. But I think something's happened to him. I think he's lost his delight in God. I think he's lost his delight in God. He's concerned with what he has to do instead of what he gets to do. His question itself suggests he's not secure in what he's done. Perhaps there's some exasperation when Jesus said, just do all this perfectly. He says, "Ah, I've done that. I've done those things. And here I am. And it's almost like Jesus is asking without asking. You want something more than following rules? You want something more than trying harder? And you can almost sense him saying, yeah, I do. I want something more than rules. I want something more than trying harder. I want that sense of security that I'm going to have eternal life. I want these things. And, and Jesus looks at him. In verse 21, Jesus looking at him. You can't go on if you don't see these next two words. Jesus looking at him loved him. In seminary, one of my professors said, the worst thing any of you could ever do is try to change a church you don't love. The worst thing any of you young whippersnapper pastors could ever do is go into a church that you don't love and try to tell them why they're wrong and why you're right. 
I think that's true in our personal relationships as well. We can't lead someone we don't love. I look back on my life and I have had many, many critics, but the people who have shaped me and molded me and changed me the most are the people who said, I love you, I see what's wrong in your life, I'm gonna help you overcome it and I'm not gonna leave you in the meantime. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, in essence, you want something more than following rules and trying harder? He said to him, you lack one thing. Here it is. Here's the answer to your question. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus said, let's take this conversation out of the realm of the spiritual and ideological and metaphysical and ethereal. Let's take it out of that and let's bring it to the ground. Do you really believe this? This is what you need to do, he says. You need to take all your stuff and you need to get rid of it. Because I know you think that stuff has given you meaning, but what you don't know is that stuff is the very stuff that's keeping you from eternal life. Essentially, Jesus says, you've kept many commands. It's, it's quite impressive. And Jesus seems to kind of like the guy. And this guy's endeared himself to the Son of God, right? You've kept many commandments, son, but you didn't keep the first one. It's almost like the story you always hear about baseball, right? A guy hits a home run and he, he runs all the bases, but he doesn't, well, he doesn't step on first base. And so they, they catch it and they go and they step on first base and he's out. Everything you've done means literally nothing because you didn't do the first thing you have to do. And I think that is true in this case. This guy has tried to live by all these commandments and he's kept all of these rules. But here's the problem. He didn't keep the first commandment, which is simply this. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus says, your money, your stuff, it's become your God. You are the rich young ruler. You're the rich young man. This is your identity. It's who you are. You see yourself as wealthy. You see yourself as powerful. And you've got to get past that if you're going to see you as I see you. Turn from all of your stuff that is holding you down, that's keeping you back, that's keeping you in sin. Turn from it. Leave it. Get rid of it. This is not a general command for all people who follow Jesus to get rid of everything they own. This is a specific command targeted at the idols of this guy's heart. So I ask us, if Jesus were speaking directly to you this morning, what's the specific idol he would ask you to get rid of and you'd look at him dumbfounded? Jesus says, turn from all that stuff. And in me, not money, you'll find exactly what you're looking for. Verse 22 is one of the sadder verses in the New Testament. Because this verse is not only true for our character or our person today, this is true for so many people that we know and so many people that we love. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of possessions. I would do anything for eternal life, but I won't do that. What might Jesus ask you this morning? Who or what occupies the throne of your heart? What do you love more than anything else? And what's it look like to give that to Jesus? And what's it look like to give that to Jesus? Seekers just like this guy, 
flood our churches all over the United States every single week. And churches more concerned with filling their seats and meeting their budgets than making disciples welcome these guys with open arms because guess what they do with those great possessions? They share them with the church. Churches can make a lot of money by telling people how they can have eternal life without calling them to repentance. He looked at his money and he looked at his status and he said, I love these too much to do what you're telling me to do. Yes, Jesus gives you purpose and meaning, but that's on the other side of obedience. I can't sell you purpose and meaning without selling you surrender to. I can't give you the stuff that Jesus will give you without giving you Jesus himself. And we can't give you Jesus himself if you're not willing to say, Lord, I realize I am not the Lord of my life. You are the Lord of my life. Jesus is either your Lord or he is nothing to you. Jesus gives us purpose and meaning, but it's on the other side of obedience. That's the interaction. That's the interaction. That's the le- now we see the lesson, verses 23 through 31. The disciples have watched all this go down, and they're confused. As always, they're like, what in the world is he talking about now? I think the lesson Jesus shares with the disciples boils down, I almost said bowls. Bowls, that's how I heard it growing up, man. Bowls, George Washington, things like that. I think the lesson boils down to three things, and that's what I'm going to share. The first can be found in verses 23 through 25, and that is this. It's harder than you think. It's harder than you think. Jesus talks about sort of um, two paths, right? A, a wide path that everyone's walking, and then a, a narrow path that, that few will find. That the way of salvation is narrow, that not many take it. Many people in life, they think they're taking the road less traveled. They think they're doing things other than everyone else. But without exegeting a poem that is completely irrelevant, there's one thing in the Robert Frost poem, The Road Less Traveled, that we don't usually think about when we read it in high school. And he looks at the two roads before him, and he said, I took the road less traveled by, right, famously. And so many in our sort of humanistic world that we grow up in, you're taught, hey, take the road less traveled, you know, be yourself. Whatever you feel, be that to the nth degree. Be, be different, be unique, you're awesome. And um, so take your unique road. And we use poems like that to sort of back it up. But one thing Frost says in the poem is he says, I looked at them and they were trodden just the same. They were equally well-worn. That means just as many people thought they were taking the popular road as thought they were doing their own thing. The facade of our modern existence is that we are so unique that no one else could ever understand what we're going through. Jesus says to find the real road less traveled, the one that really not very many people think, is going to be a hard thing. He's talking about how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. and Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it harder for rich people than poor people? Well, have you ever been addicted to bologna sandwiches? You ever been addicted to toast and zesta crackers and water from the tap? 
You never get addicted to that stuff. You get addicted to going out. You get addicted to vacations. You get addicted to more and better. No one gets addicted to being broke. Everyone gets addicted to being rich. It's more dangerous and more tempting for someone to say, I've tasted and seen that the world is good, and I'm going to keep tasting and keep seeing, and I'm going to get all this big old world has to offer. Wealth makes us crave our own safety. Wealth breeds confidence in ourselves. Wealth makes us um, overconfident in our own abilities. And we lose the radical flavor that comes with being men and women with nothing to lose when we've got a lot to lose. This is a doctrine I don't have to explain in theory because it's one we know from experience. Stuff and wealth becomes addictive. The more stuff you have, the more tempted you'll be to love it. And the more tempted you'll be to serve it. The more stuff you have, the more tempted you'll be to love it. Loving it for what it is is good. Oh, Mason told me stuff. No, no, loving it for what it is is good. I love my truck. I hate that it's in the shop with a hole in the gas tank. But if I begin to serve my truck, what's it look like to serve your truck? Well, it looks like taking out a payment I can't pay for. So I find that I'm giving more on a car payment than I am to the local church. And the scriptures teach that you're a slave to your debtor. And so I take on so many debts that I'm not being responsible with my finances. And so now I have more than just stuff. Well, I have a God who's telling me what I have to do with my money and my time. I have to, to, to fulfill these commitments that I've made. It's easy to go from loving stuff to serving stuff. And the slide is very tricky. And a number of us this morning find ourselves doing more than just loving stuff, but you find yourself serving stuff. It is harder than you think to inherit eternal life. But almost paradoxically, in verses 26 to 27, it's free. Because the disciples are asking the same thing you're asking. Well, if it's like, I've, I've heard my whole life it's free. I've heard my whole life it's, it's, it's a gift. Well, how can it be so hard if it's a free and a gift? And, and Peter is sort of thinking along the same lines. They were exceedingly astonished when Jesus says these things about wealth. They said, then who can be saved? Because you might not think you're wealthy. You know, you're like, man, I make like $25,000 a year. Like, I am not wealthy, you may be saying. And you're, you're, you're right. Like, compared to the people around you, you're really not that wealthy. But if you join me in October in India, and you step off the plane, and you take a rickshaw into a neighborhood, and you see that everyone's roof is a common tarp, and you see that around you there stands tens of thousands of people who live off less than a dollar a day, you'll begin to realize something. I'm pretty rich. I'm pretty rich. Just by being born in this country, in this era, in this country, the poorest among us are among some of the wealthiest people in all of the world. So we are the rich young ruler. How can we be saved? If they're wealthy, and if I'm wealthy, and if stuff's a danger to all of us, and if that guy can't be saved, <laughs> who can be saved? Verse 20 said, Jesus looked at him and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus is saying, here's the beauty of the gospel. You can't. Here's the beauty of the gospel. You're not going to be good enough. Even if you sold everything you had, you're not going to be saved by that. He says, you can't do it. But Jesus has done what you could never do. 
You provide nothing for your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. All hands that come to Jesus come open with nothing to give but everything to receive. Salvation, though it is not cheap, salvation is eternally and completely free. That all those who come to God in Christ Jesus receive the gift of salvation, which is free. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. You must, however, turn from the sin that blinds you. And then finally, verse three, or, or point three. It's worth it. It's worth it. Peter speaks up as he always does. Sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong. This time he's actually got a pretty good point. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. What that guy like, couldn't do, we've done. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or land for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Peter speaks up as he always does, and he's right this time, and essentially, Jesus says, you're right, but it's coming some cost to even these disciples. At the beginning of their journey, they what? They left their nets. They, they left their jobs. They left their financial security. They left their families. They left their stuff. Like them, we may have to give up some of life's most precious things for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel, and that stings. You might find yourself working in a field that isn't your major. You might think you've wasted a ton of money. You may weep for the life you thought you'd have. You may find yourself in a world far away from everything you've ever known and loved. You may lose all the stuff that you didn't want to lose. Relationships in your life may change that you really didn't want to change. But guess what? Jesus is saying, I am worth it all. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. The last thing I want us to think about before we uh, sing and uh, move towards a conclusion are these benefits of Christ. You will receive a hundredfold in the age to come. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense, right? You're going you're to give up all these things on earth. You're going to die or Christ will return, whichever happens first, and then you'll receive your reward. That, we get that. That's apparent. But Jesus says something that's kind of perplexing as well. He says, in this age, right? Verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? So Jesus is saying, you're going to receive your reward in eternity, but you're going to receive a hundredfold what you've left behind in this age too. Brothers and sisters and land and homes and with persecutions, he says. Because I think Jesus has in mind what it looks like to go as a missionary, right, and to be um, living out the gospel amongst other people. He says, you know, you might leave your brothers, but you're going to find in the congregation some brothers and sisters. You might leave your mom and dad, but there are older people in the congregation who are gonna be like your mom and dad. And in the spiritual sense, they are your mom and dad. Homes, your home is gonna be wherever I am. 
I asked our team leader in India, I said, you've lived in India for, you know, a few, for several years now. And before that, you were in North Carolina for, at seminary for a long time. And before that, you were in, you know, Charleston area. And I said, like, what do you call home? Like, when someone says home, like, what's home? And without Jesus juking me, right, he smiled and he just said, the kingdom of God. And I realized that many of us aren't willing to leave and do those sorts of things he's doing because we have a pervasive sense of at-homeness here. And I think Jesus is saying, look and see all of those houses. Look and see all that land. Guess who owns them? God is saying, I do. He owns the cattle on 10,000 hills. All land is his. There isn't a square inch of the universe over which our sovereign Lord does not declare. That's mine. John Piper about this text says this, surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back a hundred times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm camaraderie of a brother, you get back 100 times the warmth and camaraderie from Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and river and lake and ocean and tree and blade of grass on earth. Isn't what Jesus is saying to prospective disciples just this, I promise to work for you and to be for you so much that you will not be able to ever speak of having sacrificed anything. The great Hudson Taylor, Chinese missionary, was asked about his 50 years of labor in China, it's 50 years of toil in the earliest days of the gospel going to the great people of China. When asked about it, he said this, I never made a single sacrifice. Leave a little, get a lot. The world isn't impressed by Christians who chase the same things they chase. Perhaps they'll be impressed eternally by Christians who give those things away. Are you willing to make yourself last so Jesus will be first? Are you willing to trust Jesus that in making yourself last, he will, in his time, make you first? What must you do to inherit eternal life? You must turn from your sin, even the ones you love so much, and say, Lord, I'm yours. You come to him in repentance and faith and every tongue that proclaims Christ is Lord sincerely, he will not turn away. What must you do to inherit life, eternal life? Repent of your sin, trust Jesus today. Many of you already do. And the last thing I'll say is this. Is trusting Jesus worth it to you? Is he worth it? He meets you in the muck and mire of unmet expectations. He meets you in seasons of waiting and difficulty. Is trusting Jesus worth it? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so prone to get distracted by stuff, by money, 
by clothes and cars and houses and status and jobs and power and all of these things. We're chasing everything the world's chasing and we don't look a bit different than they do. And so Lord, we repent of that. I pray that there's repentance all over this room, Lord. Our problem is that we haven't seen you as wonderful as you are. We haven't trusted you with our whole lives. Lord, I pray that we would not be like this rich young ruler. May that be a haunting tale. May we pin that in our homes, on our office doors, on our bedroom doors, on our mirrors. Remember the rich young ruler. He came to you in sincerity and he left in sadness. May we be willing to give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. In Christ's name we pray.